very, very unique and difficult process. And we pray for you as well. Uh, we want to come around them and pray for them this morning. And uh, for Mia and Cece and Chad and Teresa, let, let's just uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for adoption. Talking about a picture, uh, Lord, that's the picture of your love for us. You adopted us into your family, not your begotten children, your chosen children. And Father, I thank you for Chad and Teresa that have uh, spent many dollars and months, years, uh, Father, first with Mia and then with Cece, and how you have provided, Father, decisions to be made. And Lord, thank you for your gift of life. Thank you for this couple that would, uh, that would pour their life into um, serving others. And, and uh, Lord Jesus, now Cece's part of our life. And boy, I pray that we as a church would wrap our arms around this little girl and that we would love her and teach her about her God that adores her and gave her to this family. Lord, we pray that she would be healthy. We pray that you would bless them. And thank you again, Father, for this wonderful gift of life. In Jesus' name we pray. I saw her. She's really cute. Man, pretty cool. There's a lot of our church family that have adopted, and uh, that is a, if you haven't known anybody, that's a long process. It's an emotional process, and uh, we honor you for that. We honor, we honor you, and we love you, and we are here to support you as we have them. It's not a staff thing, but uh, thank you for your faithfulness. It is a unique, unique task and calling. So um, having said that, if you're visiting with us, if you're watching on the internet, thanks for logging on. Thanks for being here. Uh, we hope and pray that you're encouraged in your time, our time together today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel. We've walked through Ruth and first and we're getting to the end. The next three weeks, we're going to be wrapping up 2 Samuel. So uh, you'll meet us. If, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, we'll meet you there in a little while. But I need you to give me about five minutes because I want to talk to our church family for, for a few moments. Folks, we have had such a great year, and we are coming to the holidays, and Carpenter's Way likes to get together during the holidays. We are a family, and we like to do lots of social stuff. So if you will look at your worship guide, open it up, and on the third inside page on the right, you have lots of events that are coming up, and that's a chance for us to spend some time together. The first one is October 31st from 530 to 6.30. We're doing a hot dog uh, um, a hot dog meal, and, and our hope for that night is that on your way after work, uh, on your way to trick-or-treat, if you take your kids, your grandkids there, you can come here and have a hot dog or two and, and uh, just hang out, and because and, it's going to be a busy night, and we just thought it would be a good excuse for us to get together. Um, Agape Feast in November is coming up. If, if you don't know what that is, in the middle section it says Annual Agape Feast. That is our, that is our churches because of the size. We have one large ch all-church um, meal and uh, y'all bring like side dishes from that you'd have at Thanksgiving and we just pig out it's so much fun we we put tables all over this room and we turn this into a, a dining hall and we have an awful lot of fun and, and so that is going to be on Tuesday before Thanksgiving on November 20th so we encourage you to uh, put that on your calendar and plan on being here there's no cost to that because you bring the food <laughs> secondly another one is in December and look I know that this is the weekend of Christmas but on December 23rd, that is our family Christmas in the morning. And that night, we're going to turn our parking lot into a, a walk-in or drive-in theater. And uh, we're going to show the movie The Star. It's a Christmas movie came out last year. And uh, hopefully, we're going to put a bunch of chairs out there, have you bring your own chairs. And we're going to have a junk food buffet. 
and that means you bring your favorite Christmas snack to share. But uh, we're hopefully there'll be a few hundred of us, and we'll sit out there and watch a movie under the stars, and it'll be a lot of fun. Um, the purpose of this is because we need to be together. We need to laugh together and enjoy each other's fellowship. So you've got those three things coming up, and then the 24th is our Christmas Eve service. So uh, we wanted to kind of give you a save the date. <laughs> I guess the Wilkies are in wedding season, but... Uh, so so put those on your calendar. And if your family's coming into town, if you're going to have Christmas that weekend, um, bring them. It's going to be so much fun. I, I'm not going to preach, okay? It's just going to be the movie uh, and a lot of food. So plan on these things. Even our agape feast, it's just a, it's just a celebration. It's just a chance to eat. We're going to have a couple games, and it's going to be a fun night. So if you have any questions about that, please contact the office. We'd love to answer your questions, but especially those of you who are new and aren't aware of all uh, of how these things work, feel free to call and ask questions because we would certainly love to uh, talk with you about it. We have had, uh, we just had also a new members class, and we've had quite a few families that are in process of coming into membership, and you'll notice in the middle there's the names of several, uh, Dale and Kitty Bounds, uh, Brandon Aaron Curry, uh, Jackie Anderson, Justin and Kayla Easley, and Justin and Jackie White, and there's others that we'll be putting in there in coming weeks. Um, we're, we're honored that you are joining our church family. We're glad that you're here. Um, and uh, we'll have another new members class in a, in a couple months for those of you who are interested. But we're just, we're just honored that you would study God's word with us and, and, and be a part of our family. Uh, it, it, it means a lot as God grows us and, and all. So let's see. I, I did have a couple. Oh, a couple more announcements I wanted to make you aware of. Uh, if you'll notice, and, and again, this is for those who attend here regularly. In a moment, we're going to take our offering, and that's that's for those who attend here regularly. So if you're visiting, we don't talk about money a lot, so just bear with me for just a second. You uh, are aware that we're in a process of raising money for a renovation. If you're visiting and you've been to the bathroom, you know why. Um, uh, if, if you drink a lot of coffee when you come in, you know why we need more bathrooms. But having said that, we're almost a third of the way through, and I want to thank you for giving for that. It's been fantastic, and uh, we, we're continuing to uh, take those gifts. But let me just put a bug in your ear that as the year comes to an end, a lot of people like to make year-end gifts. And uh, at the end of the year, we usually make up uh, some, uh, some of the, the deficit we had during the year. All of the extra money this year is going to go right in to uh, that building fund to help raise that. So as you, we're in the fourth quarter of our year, and as you think about year-end giving and who you might want to support, we encourage you to consider that. Just, uh, uh, again, we'll, we'll pay back any, any uh, behind we are in our, in our budget, and then as soon as we do that, then we'll put all the rest of the money in that building fund. So thanks for how you're giving. Um, again, what we're going to be doing with this first phase of this building is, is going to be, uh, there's between this building and the student room, we own all of that, and it's all going to be renovated for an adult discipleship wing. There's going to be classrooms in there, and it's going to be very, very nice. And then uh, the Haley class, or what's been known as the Haley class right over here, that's going to be turned into a ladies' restroom. Uh, and then, then the women's and men's restroom will be the men's restroom, and uh, it's, it's going to be fantastic. And, so, and then once we've paid that off, we'll turn around, and we want to redo the entryway and the uh, front of the building will be redone. So we're just cleaning up our, our little storefront here. And uh, uh, we know it's imperfect, and we kind of like it like that uh, because we're imperfect, and it really reflects us well. But, uh, but we want to clean it up and, and glorify the Lord. But that, that's all that. that. That's where we are with our budget. We're about some, I, I had a couple people ask this week. We're about uh, ten or 15000 behind for the year. That, that, 
uh, if, if you want to help us catch up, we sure appreciate that. As you give to the building, make sure you keep giving regularly. We don't want to fall too far behind, so we have to make it up at the end of the year. But thanks a lot, you guys. I, I was, uh, on a personal note, it was really cool. It's good for me to get out of the church sometimes. And this wedding last night that we were at, I got to see, uh, you know, Bailey and Mitchell, and you guys have met Mitchell. I got to see a lot of kids that they've had contact with. And sometimes when I do all this all the time, I forget how many people you touch every day. And being there last night, I just, I just became so aware of what your mission look, work looks like. And I know it's hard out there. I'm just, I'm just proud to encourage you. I want you to know that we're proud of being a part of Carpenters Away. We're proud of you, of your worship, of your commitment to God's word. It is an honor. Um, we, we love you. One of the difficult things, you know, my son's getting married in March. And uh, one of the difficult things is uh, they're going to get married in Fort Worth, and we were going to invite you all and get big buses and cancel the weekend services. But we decided that you don't give enough for that. So <laughs> having said that, we're going to, uh, it's going to be a small wedding, uh, just, uh, you know, some, some friends and mostly family because, you know, Zach has been in Chicago for all these years, and she's from Fort Worth, but went to SFA and, and uh, so it'll be about 100 people there. But a couple weeks after, and we'll let you know this, we're going to have a Carpenter's Way reception. And she'll be in her wedding dress. Uh, if she's watching, I just told you you need to be in your wedding dress that day. And then, and then uh, Zach will be in his suit that he wore at the wedding. But we're going to have a reception, and all of you are invited. Um, because we want you to celebrate with us. And I don't know why you cl clapped, but <laughs> I'm just teasing. But we love you. You... You know, when we came here, was Zach nine or Anna? Zach was nine and Anna was seven or six. You've helped us raise our kids. And uh, they are just as cynical and goofy as you are. So you did a good job with that. But seriously, the ministry that Zach is going to have in his life and Anna, wherever God calls them, has a lot to do with you. And I want to I just thank you. I, I watched last night at, at this wedding and boy, it had your fingerprints all over it. God has used you in ways, and I know you sit out there, and it's just hard to see it, but man, there, there was a gentleman last night there that actually is opening a Broadway play uh, this week. There was another guy in the, in the line who plays for the Seattle Seahawks, and you know what? Each of those young people and the older people have been touched by Mitchell and Bailey, and they love the Lord. They love the Lord, and I know, I know that your lives are hard. I know that some of you have difficult things at work, and some of your families are nasty. Having said that, that is your mission field, and I'm proud to pray for you. Thank you for letting Julie and I be a part of that, okay? I'll stop gushing now, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up every aisle and hug all of you, and that will freak you out. So I'm going to ask the ushers, boy, this is a good day to take an offering. Uh, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our, uh, prepare for our offering. Um, this money goes to support, <laughs> supporting missions. Um, the, the, the staff at Carpenter's Way, it pays all the bills. You all know that. Um, but if you're visiting, I want to say this. Please don't give. This is, this is our responsibility. Those who attend here regularly, we're, we're glad you're here. Man, we don't want you worried about money. Uh, we do talk about it sometimes because it's family business. But thanks for being here. Our hope and our prayer is that you fall in love with Jesus this morning. So let's commit our time to the Lord. And uh, we'll thank you for worshiping and your giving as well. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us, Father. You love us sinful. You love us faithful. You never give up. We've seen that in Samuel. You never give up. Even when we would give up, you don't give up on us. And Father, whether we are 
gluttons or adulterers, whether we're struggling with same-sex attraction or we're struggling with depression or anxiety or whatever it is we're struggling with, you never turn your face away from us. You constantly call us to yourself. You say, come unto me, you who labor and are heavy laden or burdened down with stuff, and I will give you rest. And so, Father, this morning I pray we would find rest in you. I pray, Father, for Mitchell and Bailey that you would bless their young marriage. I pray for Van and Karen as they head back this way. And there's, I'm sure, mixed emotions. We pray you'd bless them. I pray, I pray for us, Father, as we continue to raise up this generation, the next generation, the generation after that. Father, these young people, little Cece, Father, may we pour into her life and the life of our children so that they, too, could go to A&M or Texas or Angelina College or, or go right into working as firemen or policemen or police women, and they will serve the King of Kings that as they, as they do their task, that they would tell people that to hope in Jesus. And Father, may we as older people not forget that. We love you, Dad. But most of all, we are thankful that you love us even when we're unlovely. So we commit our time to you, and we ask you to bless us, to be with us today, take care of, thank you for how you provide for our needs, to take care of our family, and may we now focus for the next 45 minutes completely on you. In Jesus' name, amen.
the sin that is so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him he endured the cross regarding the shame disregarding the shame now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne God in his wisdom came down from above and wrote a new story of his love. He became a mortal, he wore flesh and bone so that we would never walk alone I'm not alone cause everywhere I'm going he's already been even in the darkness I'm confident that in my weakness Jesus will make me strong every Be 
seated. Man, that reminds me of Easter. Remember, we had the drama, and that was the song in it. Love that song. Keep pressing on. Uh, Julie, who, next to the Holy Spirit, is the voice in my head, wanted me to make sure you knew I was teasing you about clapping. I like it when you react a lot. Now, running up on the stage and tackling me because, because you don't like what I'm saying, that's different. But uh, I want you to know I like, I just like to mess with you a little bit. So feel free to clap anytime you want. I waited for you. I mean, we're actually, we're actually going to go take this show on the road someday. So, We are nearing the end of our time in uh, Ruth and First and Second Samuel and our time with King David. Three more weeks, including this morning. And what a time it has been. I have talked to so many of you who have uh, who, you, you obviously been impacted by this. Now, some of you have been uh, kind of depressed by the whole thing. Because this, of all the characters in Scripture... This David guy is the guy God said, that's what it looks like to chase my heart. That's what it looks like to be a man who seeks me. And yet when you look at his life, the difficulty of it, I mean, and his sin, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's confusing. It is not your grandmother's look at, at David, that's for sure. I should say your Sunday school teachers, not your grand. I'd like to apologize for all the grandmothers in the room. For others, it's been incredibly freeing. Um, uh, it, when, you, when you marry this, uh, uh, and Ashley and Jordan and I were just talking about this a few minutes ago, when you marry the story of David and Saul and these, the Hebrew nation uh, with what we're studying in Genesis on Wednesday night, the, the, the patriarchs of these 12 tribes that will be honored even in the kingdom, and you realize just how really sinful they are, and yet God sticks with them. Man, it's hopeful. It is hopeful. There's hope for us, family. There's hope for us. You will not out his grace. You can't. Now, you may hurt your life, but you will not hurt your eternity. Thank God for God, right? Thank God for God. Thank God for, for Jesus. And we're going to talk about that this Christmas. And I, I hope over the coming weeks, uh, as, we, as we get beyond, we're going we're to spend a couple weeks in, in the first Kings. I, I kind of want to tell you the, the, the uh, history of what happens after David dies. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to end up with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why it works out that way. I mean, there's basically a 1,000 years of mess of the nation. Actually, 3,000. Because, uh, and, and I'll, I'll make this point here. After Solomon, uh, the nation splits in two. And until the, the, the 20th century, the nation really does not unite again under a flag. Not for any meaningful period of time. It is a mess. And it, and it all centers on the fact that they broke their covenant with God, but God has said in the past, and he will say it in the future, if my people, Israel, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That is a promise to that nation, and it will happen according to Scripture. It will. They will cry out to him. God's promise and his callings in Romans 
are not revoked. He doesn't pull back. So if you are here this morning or watching on the Internet and, and you are a child of God but living in your flesh, feeding your flesh, I've got good news and bad news. You're going to destroy your life, but the good news is you will not destroy your soul. God has called you to himself. He has adopted you, and, and he will keep his promise to you. Isn't God good? And we see that in David's life. We've seen it in Jacob's life and Isaac's and Abraham. It's all over. It is uh, for all of us, whether you've enjoyed this season of study or it's been alarming to you, it sure is eye-opening, isn't it? One of the things I love about the Old Testament is it gives us an opportunity to look at what God looks like, what God's grace looks like, what his commitment looks like, what his calling looks like, and what it looks like when a called man turns his back on God. And that's what, that's what I hope you're getting out of this. And there's hope for us. There's hope for you. So three more weeks with David. And in these remaining weeks, uh, I'd like for us, in, um, we're going we're gonna to obviously look at the, the stories that are left, and there's just a couple but what I really want to do is I want to see if we can take from this man who God calls a man after his own heart, if we can glean some truths from it, um, uh, take some themes from it. Um, I, obviously, this morning you'll hear one, but we're going to see, uh, watch David die. And, and I, I, we're going to talk about dying well. It's something we don't talk about much in the church, but I want to talk about it. Um, I'm 52, and my kids are gone, and, and it's, it's like, what's next? <laughs> you know, whoa. <laughs> There's, there's a lot of thoughts, and, and I really want the second, I want to say half, but I'm probably not going to live to 104. So I want the second third of my life to be, to be well-lived. I want it to honor the Lord. I want to get back, you know, there, there's a distraction. Actually, Paul encourages uh, ministers, uh, it's good for you to stay single, but on the other hand, because there's no distractions, but, you know, it's okay to be married as well. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because now Julie and I are going to be able in the coming years to invest more in people's lives and more in the community. We're very excited about that and a little sad. You know, you know why, but it's exciting. And uh, um, I, I want to end well, and I, I want us to end well. And David tells us that. And, and do not forget, as we get to this part of the story, how messed up he made his life. Please, don't give David a pass. I'm not saying hate on him. But, but grab, keep your mind, he's not, the Goli he's not just the Goliath killer. He's not just the called king. He's the adulterer, murderer, David. I mean, he, he messed up uh, with a capital M. He really, really messed up. But God never gave up on him. And uh, so we're going to do that. Uh, David is going to make amends. Uh, Saul's sin has caused a famine at one point in the history. And his own sin caused a famine somewhere else. So that we're going to take a couple of stories at the end of 2 Samuel, and we're going to talk about making amends. And how do we do that? Uh, for those of you who have been in uh, uh, under Bill Johnson's, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, it's a biblical concept. Um, it, it's a very biblical concept. So we're going to have some fun. But we're going to look at insights that we can learn from David's life on living. So let's pray, and then let's run through today's text. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, your word alone, though, uh, your word with me teaching is fine, but it isn't life-changing. Uh, life-changing things happen when the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. So I ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to speak to those who don't know you, to speak to those of us who do but are not surrendered, and those who are surrendered. And today, may we run to Jesus. Amen. So it seems uh, in our society that there is a, a, a general genetic sense of fairness tells us that if you, if you do well in life, and I mean by that, if you're, if you're kind to people, if you treat people fairly, um, or if you at some point have, have wronged somebody, but then make it right, 
You know what I mean by that? There's a, in our general generic sense of uh, genetic sense of fairness, we believe that if you do life well, or if you make right the wrongs you made, that um, that life should be less complicated. That that it should come back to you. No matter what we think about karma, uh, the truth is we kind of believe in it. We kind of think that if I'm good a good person, people are going to treat me well. And yet, if you look at your life and the life of those around you, or even David at the end of his life, the truth is that's not true. That's not true. There's an old saying, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. And you're going to see that here. Um, if that was uh, a, a phrase unworthy of the pulpit, welcome to Carpenter's Way. But the, 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 the thing is that the, the, the sense of fairness doesn't always play out. And in, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, we find David heading back to Jerusalem. And, and I've already kind of reminded you who David is. He's not just a Goliath killer. He's the called king of Israel. He, uh, he, he, for 20-some years, 15 to 20 years, he runs and lives in caves because when Saul finds out he's going to be the next king, he wants to kill him. So David runs for his life for, for a couple dozen years uh, to, from the assassins of Saul. And then Saul is killed. And then remember Judah, that one of the 12 tribes actually calls him to be their king. And then the other 11 come in and they make him their king. And then he defeats takes over Jerusalem and he's going to make it the capital and, and there's 10, 15 years of, of uh, you know, just great things happening. They build this city of Jerusalem that you can go visit and, and, and the Davidic city and it's, it's a wonderful place and then David decides now that it's built to bring the Ark of the Covenant back but he, he brings it back in disobedience. Not that it was wrong to bring the Ark back but God instructed him how to do that and he just blows off God. He just says, I'm going to put it on a cart instead of carrying it for whatever reason, and use it dies. We start getting a sense that David maybe is a little bit too full of himself, and he starts cutting curves, uh, and, and he disobeys, and use it dies there. And then after that, uh, uh, he, he does bring the ark back. He builds a tabernacle, and then he wants to build a temple, remember? And God says, did I ask you for a temple? I'm, I'm satisfied with the tent. Uh, and I'm, go ahead and collect the things. Uh, later, I'm going to let a temple be built for me. And so David does that. And then the very next story is it starts with it. when kings were supposed to be at war, David stayed at home and he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba, getting her pregnant. And of course, the classic response to that, you kill her husband so nobody knows that he's not the father. Uh, kind of a sad commentary. And um, from that point, God confronts him through the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells him that, uh, that even though his sins are forgiven, and that's a really important part of this, that even though his sins are forgiven, that his family will live uh, under, the th under the sword. In other words, there's going to be violence throughout it. And you know what happens. Uh, one of his sons rapes his sister, his half-sister. And then her full brother, Absalom, ends up killing him. And David's watching over all this. And he doesn't kick in. He doesn't do the kingly thing or the dad thing and stop any of this. And so Absalom ends up estranged um, from his dad. And, and years later, his dad allows him to come back into the capital city but doesn't see him. And, and that leads to him causing a coup. A literal coup d'etat. He actually causes a civil war. And in fact, he's effective at it, Absalom. He's handsome. He looks like your pastor. He's, he's charming. He's a politician. <laughs> he's a baby kisser. And then all of a sudden, um, he overcomes David. And David leaves Jerusalem, remember, in our, in our last couple of weeks. He leaves Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. But he goes and he gets his army back together. And Absalom ends up being killed. The coup gets put down. So they start making their back, way back to Jerusalem. With, which takes us where we are right now. And I, I did all that to remind you of this, that David has, has, has righted the wrongs. He's confessed. He's made things right to the best of his ability. 
you would think that now, uh, now that he's, you remember he got really depressed because Absalom was killed, and Joab, the, his general said, you've got to wait, you've got to get out there. Your people think they've done wrong, and so he goes out there, he's doing right, and now he's heading back to Jerusalem, and you would think now that all's well. And that's where we pick up our story in 2 Samuel 19, verse 39, and I'm going to move quickly this morning. So all the people crossed the Jordan with the king, and after David had blessed Barzali uh, and kissed him, Barzali returned to his hometown. Don't worry about him right now. Just the idea that he's moving back. He's going back to Jerusalem, crossing the Jordan River towards that city. The king then crossed over to Gilgal, uh, taking Kimham with him. All the troops of Judah, this is the important part, all the troops of Judah and half of the troops of Israel escorted the king on his way. What an amazing day that must have been. Everybody's feeling good. Absalom's dead. Uh, David, now, now I gotta, I'm, I'm reading into this, but I don't think David's feeling good. I think David's doing what God called him to do, but he still is mourning over the death of his son. Just because you right the wrongs, just because you end up cleaning things up, doesn't mean you feel good about it. There's going to be a, there, it's, it's, you know, run from sin. Run from sin. It, it, it stains your heart. Um, it, it causes agony. So verse 40, 41, here it goes. So they're walking back. They cross the Jordan. But all the men of Israel complained to the king. <laughs> the men of Judah stole the king and didn't give us the honor of, keep, of helping take you, your household, and all your men across the Jordan River. So um, I should have read it a little bit better, but if you're getting this, this sounds like a lot of whining, and that's just what it is. The men of Israel here is referring to the 11 tribes that are not Judah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and explain something. They're going to refer to themselves as 10 tribes. So if you pay attention, you're going to say, well, I thought it was the 11. Well, by this time, the tribe of Simeon had been incorporated into the tribe of Judah for reasons I don't need to go into right now. So there's actually only 11 tribes at this point. That's six, but I meant to do this. <laughs> Sorry, I'm in a silly mood. So there's 11 tribes at this point, not 12. Uh, the, the tribes of Israel are the northern tribes. And then you have the tribe of Judah, which is Judah and Simeon. The men of Judah replied, The king is one of our own kinsmen. Why should this make you so angry? We haven't eaten any of the king's food or received any special favors. So in other words, you've got the tribes of Israel, the northern tribe, saying, Why didn't we get to help him across the Jordan? And the, Judah, the, the tribe of Judah goes, What is your problem? We didn't get any special food from the guy. We just... We just took his arm as he walked across the river. He's like 52 years old. He's old. Actually, he was about that age. But there are 10 tribes in Israel, the others replied. So we have 10 times as much right to the king as you do. Now, please understand, they're not asking for the king's wealth or protection. They're talking about pieces of this guy. Can you imagine being David? You can't imagine being David. If you have more than one sibling, you know what that feels like. Well, we want him. Well, I want him. If you have more than one child, it doesn't happen in the Wilkie home, but it probably happens in yours. That's your favorite. By the way, the quickest solution to that, I think, because it's never happened in our home, is yes, she is. So, and then you return the favor. But, but there are 10 tribes in Israel, the other replied, so we have 10 times as much right to the king as you do. What right do you have to treat us with such contempt? Weren't we first to speak of bringing him back to, our king, uh, to be our king again? The argument continued back and forth, and the men of Judah spoke even more harshly than the men of Israel did. And I love that last line, because my simple reading, if it wasn't in there, would have been, man, what is wrong with the northern tribe? But they want us, northern tribes, but they want us to know that the tribe of Judah is just, if not worse than the northern tribes. This is a family. This is the Hebrew family made up of 11 tribes now that are squabbling like your kids. Not your kids, the kids of people in other churches. 
I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, the Hebrew family is super pouty uh, over who got to escort David across the Jordan River, River on his way back to Jerusalem. Chapter 20. There happened to be a troublemaker there named Sheba, son of Birshi, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, northern tribe. Sheba blew a ram's horn and began to chant, Down with the dynasty of David! We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Come on, you men of Israel, back to your homes. What a jerk. So all the men of Israel, the northern tribes, desert David and follow Sheba, son of Birchi. But, but the men, and, and for those of you who are paying attention, I'm pronouncing it in the uh, uh, Italian way because I don't know how to pronounce it in Hebrew. But the men of Judah stayed with their king and they escorted him from the Jordan River to Jerusalem. There is an old pastor saying that if it wasn't for my church, I'd be the best pastor in the world. Maybe you have felt that as a parent, but I think that's what David's got to be thinking here. What is wrong with these people? Verse 3, when David came to his palace in Jerusalem, he took ten concubines he had left to look after the palace and place them in seclusion. So David's got work to do. I think this is interesting. David doesn't kill anybody here. David keeps walking to Jerusalem. He keeps moving. This noise around him does not stop him. He lets the northern tribes leave. He doesn't kill anybody at this point. He's heading back to Jerusalem because that's his task. When he comes to his palace, he takes the ten concubines he had left to look after the palace and place them in seclusion. Their needs were provided for, but he no longer slept with them, so each of them lived like a widow until she died. You remember who these ten were. When David walked out of Jerusalem... He let, uh, when his son was about to invade and take over the city, because he didn't want the city to be destroyed, he leaves the concubines to take care of the palace. And one of the first things that his son does is they sleep with them. And that is in, uh, in biblical times and, and, and maybe still to this day with concubines, that's the ultimate slam. That says there's no turning back. They were now defiled, so David couldn't have them anymore. For those of you who don't know what a concubine is, it is an almost wife is the best way to describe it. They don't have the privileges of being a wife, but they're they're, they are uh, legalist, legally allowed to sleep with the king. They can have babies, but those babies are attributed to his real wives. Uh, they would take care of the palace. That was their ultimate responsibility. So he comes back, and you know, he could have killed them. He could have killed them as the spoils of war, but he doesn't. David is genuinely a merciful man. Even the sinful guy, even the selfish, selfish guy, he shows them great mercy by allowing them to live like widows by taking care of them. And I think that's an interesting observation. Verse 4. Then the king told Amasa, mobilize the army of Judah within three days and report back at that time. So Amasa went out to notify Judah, but it took him longer than the time had been given. So here we have David moving back into the, into the capital, moving back into the palace, and he's actually taking control. He first has to deal with those concubines who have been taking care of the palace. He deals with them in a proper and merciful way. Then he turns around, and now he has to deal with an army that's in disarray. The Judean army is out there. What's interesting is that David asked Amasa to do it and, and, and not Joab. You remember that Joab is, is the longest reigning head of the military for David. He's been with him for a long time. Amasa was actually the head of the military under, uh, under David's enemy, under his son Absalom. And David, in a smart political move, says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather all of the Judean warriors now, and I'm going to give you three days to do it. I'll give you a hint. He doesn't get it done in three days. And there's a problem. And David needs to wrangle his nation again, so he goes into action. Then David said to Abishai, verse 6, 
Sheba, son of Beersheba, is going to hurt us more than Absalom did. Quick, take my troops and chase after him before he gets into a fortified town where he can't reach him. So Abishai and Joab, together with the king's bodyguard and all the mighty warriors sent out from Jerusalem to go after Sheba. As they arrived at the great stone of Gibeon, Amasa met them. Joab was, weary, uh, was wearing his military tunic with a da dagger strapped in his belt. As he stepped forward to meet Amasa, who, by the way, is his cousin, he slipped the dagger from his sheath. How are you, my cousin? No, I didn't need to tell you that. I forgot his shoulder. Joab said, and took him by the beard with his right hand as though he was going to kiss him. Amasa didn't notice the dagger in his left hand, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with, uh, with it so that his insides gushed out to the ground. Not sure why we needed that detail, but it is interesting. Joab did not need to strike again, and Amasa soon died. Joab and his brother Abishai left him lying there and continued after Sheba. One of Joab's young men shouted to Amasa's troops, If you are for Joab and David, come follow Joab. But Amasa lay in a, in a blood in the middle of the road, and Joab's men saw that everyone was step, stopping to stare at him. So he pulled him off the road into a field and threw a cloak over him. With Amasa's body out of the way, everyone went on to Joab to capture Sheba, son of Beersheba. So let me pause. All of that information, I couldn't come up with one really deeply theological thing, except the big picture is David's trying to wrangle his nation back in order. A civil war that was caused by his sin has been put down, and he sends these guys out. He tries to unite the northern and southern kingdom by using their general. He ends up not being able to take get the... Uh, uh, get the submission of the Judean warriors. So David sends uh, out the Judean warriors uh, to go prepare to fight uh, this guy from the northern kingdom. And on the way, they come up to with this other guy who's failed his task, and he kills him. Look, most theologians say that that was a wrong act. I really don't know. I don't know if he kills him because he doesn't accomplish what was needed for him to accomplish. I don't know if he does it out of envy, but the truth is it doesn't really clarify that. But he kills this guy, and after he kills him, everybody's standing around staring, so they hide his body, and then one of his associates yells out to the people, if you're with David and Joab, go with Joab. And everybody, everybody in the army goes. So what Amasa couldn't do in three days, Joab does in ten minutes. Not saying it's right, but it is a weird story. So what's the big picture here that I want you to grasp? David's lost control. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's got these people under him that are taking things into his own hands. You ever felt like that? I mean, yes, you felt like that. It doesn't matter if you're a mom of a two-year-old. It doesn't matter if you if you got a call Tuesday and we're told that your baby's ready. It, it doesn't, I mean, it's just, it's just life is out of control. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor in charge of a church. You, you, you. You don't have the control you think you do. And David is in that circumstance here. So let's keep going. Let's see, what verse was that? Verse 13. So check up 14. Meanwhile, Sheba traveled through all the tribes of Israel and eventually came to the town of Abel Beth Mechem. All the members of his own clan, the bit, I don't know, assembled for a battle and followed him into the town. When Joab's forces arrived, they attacked that town. They built a siege ramp up against the town's fortifications and began battering down the wall. But a wise woman in the town called out to Joab, Listen to me, Joab. Come over here so I can talk to you. As he approached, the woman asked, Are you Joab? I am, he replied. So she said, Listen carefully to your servant. I'm listening, he said. Then she continued, There used to be a saying, If you want to settle an argument, ask advice at the town of Abel. I am the one 
who is peace-loving and faithful in Israel. But you are destroying an important town in Israel. Why do you want to devour what belongs to the Lord? And Joab replied, Believe me, I don't want to devour or destroy your town. That's not my purpose. All I want is a man named Sheba, son of Birchi, from the hill country of Ephraim, who has revolted against King David. If you hand over this one to me, I will leave the town in peace. All right, the woman replied, We will throw his head over the wall to you. Another weird cultural tradition in this time. But then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off Sheba's head and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the ram's horn and called the troops back from attack. They all returned to their homes, and Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now pay attention to these last three verses. They're boring, but they're important. Now Joab was the commander of the army of Israel. Benaniah, son of Johadah, was captain of king's bodyguard. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahalud, was the royal historian. Shiva was the court secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, a descendant of Jair, was David's personal priest. Why does that, those last few verses matter? Because what's happening is David is leading his nation despite the fact that they are, I think scripture calls them restless. And you know, if you're not careful, you'll think that David was an exception to the rule, but he's not. It really is like our lives. If you are a leader, and every one of you are a leader at some level or some form, the truth is that your flock at times gets unruly and they do their own things and you want to throw in the towel. And it's sometimes they would like to tell you you're not a good leader and you start to believe them. But the truth is that we have this misguided belief that if we do things God's way, that God's goal is actually for us to be successful. We think that God's last opportunity to accomplish his task is us, so we believe that if we're faithful, surrendered, then the quickest path to success or to God's plan is whatever we think should happen. And that's not true. In fact, if you look at the history of the nation, you find that most of the time God doesn't do things in the most efficient manner. He actually does them weirdly. I mean, take Noah's Ark, for instance. Noah's Ark is a strange story, not just because a group of people had to be in a boat for a year, but the fact that God made them be in a boat for a year. You know, God could have just removed all of his enemies and left eight people on the planet sitting on the ground. But he actually made them get into a boat. They had to build the boat for over 100 years. They had to get in the boat, and they were in the boat for a year. And then they get out of the boat, and they have to start over everything. It's kind of crazy. I mean, when God removes the nation, the Hebrew people, out of Egypt, he could have just killed all the Egyptians and given them their land and their wealth, but he doesn't. He takes them through the sea, which they didn't have to go through. He could have taken them any way he wanted. And then when they get across that sea, he actually takes them on the longest route, 40 years in all. He takes them on the longest route to the promised land. If God wanted to, he could have sent a divine helicopter to pick those people up and put them in the land he promised to them, or Egypt could have become that land. Too often we limit ourselves to what God ends up doing, and we go, wow, that was a hard thing. It's not hard except for God. What if God's plan isn't to make things easy, or isn't to make things victorious, but is actually about intimacy with us? What if difficulty is what draws us to the Lord, and God's God's plan is going to be done. There's no way God doesn't accomplish his plan. No way. It's impossible for God to fail. If he sets a plan in action, there's no way it's not going to happen. What if we are not needed by God, but we are invited by God to serve him in this mess? 
What if right now in the United States of America, it isn't the most ugly time in history, but it's actually the most fruitful time for the evangelic church in the evangelic church in the history of this country? What if this country wasn't supposed to be a shining light on the hill, which, by the way, is what Israel was called, or Jerusalem, but what if this nation was actually going to be a place where Christians would one day humble themselves before God and depend on him because they could no longer depend on the government? What if things aren't out of control any more than God expected, and exactly right now at this time, we're supposed to be crying out to him for guidance, direction, and hope? Are you following me? Let me read you something that Paul wrote in Philippians 1. This letter is from Paul to Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's people, his holy people in Philippi, who belong to Christ Jesus, including church leaders and deacons. I'm going to read this quickly now. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Wherever, Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began a good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it's right that I should feel as, as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Did you see what he just slipped in there? He just slipped in where he's at. He's in prison right now. God knows how much I, long, I love you, and I long for you with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure lives and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. All I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, so he's about to say something important. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here, he's in jail, has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It is true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know that I have been appointed to defend the good news. These, those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerity, intending to make my chains even more painful to me. But it doesn't matter. Whether the motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. So, so Paul's under attack. He's in prison by the Romans, and the church, many in the church are attacking him. For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. By the way, a moment ago in a verse, he referred to dying as deliverance. But if I live, I can do more faithful work, uh, fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes... It's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to see you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Jesus Christ because of what he is doing through me. All right, now he's going to instruct them, and this is important. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. 
So in other words, you know, your goal isn't to overthrow the government. Your goal isn't to make sure that everybody is treating each other fairly. Your goal isn't to socially fix the ails of society. Your goal is, what I want you to do, you guys, while I'm in prison and I may die, is to live as citizens of heaven. Then whether I come to see you again or I only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of what? Okay, take a deep breath. Not just the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it, chapter 2. Is there any encouragement? Now, now look at this in context, because you've heard this section so many times. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassion? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving each other, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take the interests of others too. You should have the same attitude that Christ had. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus Christ humbling himself to the point of a servant. So in other words, as American Christians, we have to remember that our citizenship isn't in Washington, D.C., it's in heaven. And that just because we're the children of God, we shouldn't deserve or expect special treatment here in this culture. We shouldn't expect the world to hail us as wonderful. That's not how this works. That's never how this has worked. The truth is, if you are a man or woman of God, those who are not men or women of God will run from you in the same way that they run from God. We will suffer in the same way and for the same reasons Jesus suffered, because we are not what they want us to be. We are offensive to them. And when David starts doing the right thing in the nation, they start fighting fighting over which piece of him each of them deserved to have. We are ten tribes, you are one, we should have ten times more of David than you do. So we're going to break our day into tenths, and you get the first tenth, we get the other nine. It's insane, but that is how people live today. The problem is, is that our flesh keeps telling us, and I think Satan's invested in us, into believing that if we just do things right, if we just treat others kindly, if we live out our faith, the world will celebrate us, and it has never celebrated them because it reminds them of what awaits. No matter how people-friendly we become, no matter how we try to love the lost and not be judgmental, the truth is it is the Holy Spirit within you that convicts the sinner. And it's time to accept that. It doesn't give you the right to be a jerk. You should still be loving, but the truth is that you are, in fact, today the temple of the Holy Spirit, and everywhere you go, God goes. That genetic feeling that if I do well, people will treat me well is just a lie. It's not true. And you know it's not true if you look at your life. You can't explain why your cousin is the way that she is, or your brother, or maybe your parents or maybe even one of your kids. I didn't raise you like this. Well, you forget that they were born flesh. The truth is, 
as we live, people are either drawn to God or they run away from him. David's task now was to be faithful to God and his task for him, no matter what was going on around him, and he does well. In fact, God's desire for the nation in Psalm 20 says this, Some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Those nations fall down and collapse, but we will rise up and stand firm. You see, the Hebrew nation were supposed to be a people who valued God above all else. They treasured God, including treasuring God over wealth and success. We, by nature, always look and evaluate ourselves based upon success, not godliness. And we're learning today that godliness and faithfulness to your tasks is the point, not how it works out. Because in the end, it's going to work out. For, for Paul, in the passage, that long passage I wrote, for Paul, death was deliverance. Because he understood when Jesus said, I want you to put your treasure and value, value wealth where moth and thief and rust can't destroy it. In eternity, that's where we put our wealth. That's where we put our value. But if we don't, if our value system, friends, is set on success as we define it, or even number of salvations, people we lead to Christ, then by definition, Jeremiah the prophet was a failure because there's no history in him ever having any converts. And you remember that Elijah went into a deep depression because they wanted to kill him. The truth is that we often don't look at God as the definer of success or failure. We look at our own understanding. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10. Look at this. This is pretty cool. Now we have this light shining in our hearts. Paul's writing this. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars. Okay, take a, take a breath. I want you to think about that. We have this incredible thing inside, this powerful light. But we're fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Does that not describe your life? Does that not describe David that we've been studying? Here's this guy with this incredible calling and the anointing of God on his life, but he's this fragile jar that keeps doing dumb stuff. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. We are pressed in every way, Paul said of his life and his ministry. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not given to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Is that not a great passage of Scripture? Does that not describe your life? I'm a child of God, but man, my flesh, why do I... I'm just here to tell you this morning that your bad wife doesn't have to affect your faithfulness to her or your task. Your unkind husband does not have to affect your faithfulness to God as you live out your calling. Your messed up nation, three weeks, we're going to vote. And there's going to be about a large, about half of you that are disappointed no matter which way it goes. And you will be convinced on the, on the Wednesday after that America has finally fallen just want you to know that God's plan is not to save America. It's to save the people of this nation. 
There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There's a called nation, that's Israel, but it's not a Christian nation. We are the children of God. We are the Christian nation. That's why we got to gather all the time. And I know a lot of you watching on the Internet enjoy the great preaching. But what we do that's most powerful is actually look in each other's eyes and say, it is well with my soul. And then when you're having a bad week, somebody puts their hands on your shoulders, they hug you and say, it is well with your soul. You know, Julie and I have been talking. I'm going I'm to pick on Chad and Teresa a little bit. Um, I have no idea what Tuesday was like, but I don't know if you caught the story, and, and Bible study leaders, I'm about to end, so bear with me. But can you imagine getting a call? And, and, and again, the process is they call, can we hand out your information to a parent who is going to choose a child? Okay, yes, you can do that. He hangs up and he says, Teresa, they're looking at our book again, so I don't know, here's the story. And you start praying. And the gestation period of that child may be three weeks. <laughs> it may be a week. But you've got time to buy diapers or think about buying diapers and kind of work emotionally through it. That's not how that phone call went. That phone call started with, can we give your book out? Yeah. Yes, you can. Congratulations, you're getting a baby. See you on Thursday. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'm getting diapers for the baby or me. As excited and prepared as they are, God's plan was not smooth on that. I mean, thank God, that baby is adorable, and, and, and you may see her if they haven't taken her home. But it's quite remarkable how God always does things in the most inconvenient, inefficient manner in the world. And sometimes it involves the sin of our, our spouses or their unkindness or the unfaithfulness of others or our pastor or whatever. But the truth is we were never supposed to have our fixation there. It was supposed to be on Jesus, the light that's within us. And that's the hardest part about being a child of God. The hardest part about being a child of God is remembering that our citizenship is really in heaven where the King of Kings reigns. It's really hard. David seems to accomplish that at this point. I do not think David is happy crossing the Jordan. I, my opinion, I just don't think he's happy. Why? Because of how he reacted when Absalom was killed. He went into a deep, dark place and was weeping. And finally, Joab slapped him and said, you've got to get out there. You're going to lose your army. And he does. And I think he does it like a courageous man. But I want to remind you what John Wayne said, that great theologian. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's saddling up when you are afraid. It's doing the right thing. And for the child of God, it's just as true. Put your hope in God, family. Put your hope in God. Don't put it in your pastor. Don't put it in your church. Don't put it in your favorite teacher. You put your hope in God. And as we do that, we will have community as we both put our hope in God. That's the mistake of the church. The mistake of the church today keeps telling you to put your hope in the church. Do not put your hope in the church. Put your hope in God. And those of us who have put our hope in God will be hopeful. Because when I'm down, you will lift me up. You will approach me like Joab, slap me upside of the head like the Godfather did to his son and say, act like a man. Love that scene. Although it's not a good movie, but it's a great scene. Because sometimes i got to be reminded to act like the man. If you're a, uh, one of these movement people, sorry about that. Act like a woman. It's okay. Be God's person. And by the way, just to keep things equal in our society, I want to remind you that in that town, it was a woman that was the wise person in town and convinced them to throw his head over the wall. Kind of violent, but she was still in charge. I, I've been wondering all week how they threw it. I don't know, lob it. It's a weird, this is a weird time. When we cut people's heads off, just throw his whole body over. Ah, it's too much work. Let's just take his head. Take his foot, do whatever you want. I don't get it. But I do know that in this mess, 
David put his eyes back on the task and the God of the task, and he's going to finish well. Boy, the middle was a mess, though. The middle was a mess, just like it was with you. So Galatians 6, 9. Here we go. Ta-da! There it is. I know you're tired. I'm tired, too. I know you get down. I get down, too. And seasons of your life come. You have a baby, and for the next six months, you struggle with depression. I get that. And that does not mean you're sinful. You, your kids leave, and you feel excited that you don't have to entertain them, but unusually sad that that phase of your life is over, right? Am I the only one? It's kind of weird. How you doing? Julie and I are doing great. It'll never be the same, will it? And that's okay. My task has not changed. And neither has yours. So take heart, family. Can we put that verse up there, Kip? I want to leave it up there as we wrap up. I just want you to take heart. Here's the point. If you hear nothing else, let's not get tired of doing what's good. No matter what happens in Washington this next month, no matter what happens in Austin, no matter what happens around us, no matter what happens to your family, Thanksgiving's coming. That's why we have the agape feast. That will be the one meal with no fighting. We will kill anybody who starts a fight there. It's just the way we do things here. It's, the holidays are coming, and yes, your weird uncle's going to show up, and he is going to make things awkward. It's just how it is. So let's not get tired of doing what good, because it's just the right time. We are going to reap a harvest of blessing. Don't give up. Don't give up. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, thank you for David. I, I, it's kind of weird, but I'm even thankful for his sinfulness. Thank you that we, thank you that we win because <laughs> you can't lose. And if we are about your business, no matter how chaotic or crazy it gets, we will reap the harvest in time. We will be delivered at the right time. Maybe, probably not the way we had hoped, but you are good. So I pray for my family here this morning. I pray for my family that, that Father, are still in Houston, cleaning up after a wedding, and I'm I pray for our family that's on vacation and some that are in the hospital. I pray for our family and friends that are watching on the internet. That if they don't know you today, they would run to you, and if they do, they would run back to you. That they would not get weary in doing well. Because soon we will reap that harvest. So encourage our hearts to do what David did. To cross the Jordan as people are screaming around us and walk back into Jerusalem and deal with our concubines and deal with the, the battles before us faithfully and sometimes quietly. For our country, Father, rule us. Amen. Bible study is going to start in five or ten minutes.